because this is Tongan and language week. Good evening, white people. Good evening, people of color. I'm Victor Roger. I am this year's writer in residence at the University of Victoria in Wellington. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to Shifting Points of View, presented by Word Christchurch and Christchurch Arts Festival, and to this session, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race, with Rini Edo Lodge. Hello. <laughs> Newly arrived from Australia. Um, and this is a session I was very excited to be asked to chair since a lot of my work as a playwright deals with race. Before we get down to business, a big thank you to some additional sponsors of this event, Te Runanga o Naitahu and Christchurch Art Gallery, and a thank you as well to the other generous patrons and sponsors and supporters. And so to the reason we are here tonight, Rennie. She's only turning 28 later this month, but she's already made a huge impact with her writing in her native England and elsewhere by speaking her truth. London-born and raised to Nigerian parents, Rennie studied English literature at the University of Central Lancashire. She graduated in 2011, and if you jump on Google, you will see that she is already listed amongst its notable alumni. Mm -hmm. She... <laughs> I you didn't see... know that. Yeah, yeah, that's right, isn't it? A journalist, she's been a contributor to The Guardian. Her writing achieved a high commendation from Channel 4's Best Young Blogger competition in 2010. She was also listed in the Daily Telegraph's Women to Follow on Twitter in 2013. The following year, The Voice newspaper named her in their list of ones to watch. Rennie's appeared as a commentator on various TV and radio shows. And a couple of years ago, she went head to head with the infamous conservative commentator Milo Yiannopoulos, over the, theory, over the theory that men are better than women at playing chess. How was that? Uh, I wouldn't do it again. Okay. In 2014, she'd had a guts full of talking to white people about race, and so she wrote a blog called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race. And off the enormous success of that, she was offered the opportunity to write her debut book of the same title, a series of seven piercing and provocative essays which look at the still thorny issue of race and racism amongst other things. But unlike many similarly themed books, which are from an African-American point of view, this is absolutely and avowedly a British point of view. Marlon James, who won the Booker Prize for A Brief History of Seven Killings, a book which I think we can all agree was actually very, very long. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I did that one. Um, <laughs> Marlon praised why I'm no longer talking to white people about race as essential and begging to be written, and I couldn't agree with him more. For me, this book is the British grandchild of James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time, a cousin to Ta-Nehisi Coates' Between the World and Me, a book that is likely to become a classic. It made me teary, it's making me teary now, it made me angry, and in one instance, it even made me gasp. So ladies and gentlemen, it is my absolute pleasure to say hi to my, a feel my, and welcome Reni Edo Lodge. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for spending your Tuesday evening with me. Much appreciated. So, Rennie Edo Lodge, white people, white people, Rennie Edo Lodge. <laughs> They're Let's not go. all white. <laughs> <laughs> and others. Um, one thing I thought when I was reading the book 
There's an irony in that you've written a blog and a book, and I'm sure people have said this before, called Why I'm No Longer Talking to White People About Race, and now that's what you seem to be doing an awful lot of. Well, can everyone hear me all right? Okay, fantastic. Um, I think, not only, I think for some people the book is very cathartic, and I think to other people the book is a revelation. And so, um, yes, there's an element of, you know, writing something that for me, you know, when I wrote that post back in 2014, I... I wasn't being in any way deliberately provocative. It was very clear to me that that was something I could no longer do anymore. I was absolutely deadly serious on that. But what happened was that it was almost a red rag to a to a bull in that me saying, look, I'm setting this boundary. I can't do this anymore. I'm emotionally exhausted. I've been trying. It's like banging my head against a brick wall. I don't want to do this anymore. You know, that... Really, I think maybe many white people read that and they were like, wow, how could she have come to this decision? Then they read the post and they're like, oh, I see how she came to that decision. Um, and I think conversely, people who weren't white from all over the world got in contact. And, you know, what I was being told from people far, far, you know, far beyond black British people were saying, Renny, I really feel like you've accurately articulated something I've been trying to say for a really long time. Thank you. Um, and, you know, sometimes people will say to me now, after the book's come out, but I'm not black British, Rennie, and I really resonate with a lot of the things you're saying. Why is that? And I say, well, it's because I'm not really... It's not a book about any particular black British experience. It's, it's actually a book that's challenging whiteness as a dominant ideology, right? As a powerful dominant ideology that that you can see, I think, a little bit more clearly if the ideology isn't working in your favour. And so wherever you are in the world, um, you'll recognise that if, if you have been locked out of whiteness in some way. And I think that now we're sort of reaching a maybe a tipping point uh, in, in Western countries where um, we're starting to see the extremist edge of what that dominant ideology really means for the world, and it's quite ugly. Mm -hmm. You've written that, um, in reflection, the blog was your breakup letter to whiteness. Mm. But you didn't realise that at the time? No, I mean, I think, you know, I'm doing an awful lot of reflecting now because that writing that really changed my life. Uh, and I've always been somebody who's kept diaries, who's always... I've, I've used writing to process how I feel. I haven't always made that writing public. But that was absolutely part of that. And what it, it came about by me being involved in left progressive feminist circles, activist circles, all of which were disproportionately white dominated. Um, and the, that showed in the priorities of these groups. And when I questioned it, when I questioned those priorities, I was told that I was the problem for questioning those priorities. I was told, well, you know, racism isn't a problem unless you point it out, you're being divisive, you know. Yeah, of course, we all agree with you that racism is bad, but we'll get to that later. You know, we've got other more important things to do here. You're splitting the movement, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so I really... I came to a point, and, you know, I detail some of these encounters in the book where I thought it's actually very risky to be discussing these issues with white people, particularly white people with social power, because it can mean, it can have extremely negative and adverse effects on your social position in the world. Um, you know, I, a month before I wrote that initial blog post, 
um, because of my space in activism and, you know, I was writing on the internet as well, I was being asked a lot to appear on British TV and radio to essentially be a, a token black woman in feminism. And just a month before I wrote that post, I had the unfortunate um, encounter of being on a panel, an end-of-year panel on the BBC, BBC Radio 4's Women's Hour, alongside two other white, white women who were feminists. Um, and the question was put to me, please explain why we need to be discussing racism and feminism. And by the end of the day, I was being called that by an ex-conservative ex member of parliament that I was aggressive and I was a bully and that I should be apologising to the other women for uh, talking about race in feminism. And repeatedly I found that if I was talking about race or racism or calling attention to it, the white people in the immediate vicinity of me would start going, you're calling me racist. Like, that's really hurtful to me and my feelings and my whole understanding of myself. <laughs> like, it's too much, you know. There would just be this defensive denial. And... Um, and that can have real negative implications socially for anybody who wishes to call these things into question because the numbers, you know, at least in Britain, and I'm sure here it's similar, show repeatedly that you are much more likely to be in a position of power in which you can affect somebody's life chances if you are white. And that's what I found repeatedly in my research for the book. And so, you know, me saying these things... Would, would not be necessarily just offending a social group. It might be offending my landlord, my boss, my teacher, you know, somebody who could decide not to provide, you know, to negatively impact my life ch chances, you know. Or, I mean, it would be so much more than being excluded from a social group. And yet you've chosen to speak your truth, right? Well, you know, what happened was when I wrote that post, suddenly that's all white people wanted to hear from me. Mm -hmm. I think, like, <laughs> you know, we are really talking about some... I think the dynamics are very similar to a relationship. In fact, mm. you know, I think if you look at whiteness as a dominant ideology and a political project over hundreds of years, you can see how there's gaslighting tactics, there's abusive tactics, you know, when you see the, the overall um, behaviour of a dominant ideology and how it attempts to reinforce itself and justify itself. And when you... When, other, when people were pointing out, they're told, no, it's actually all in your head. Like, that's an abuse tactic. And to take that, like, relationship metaphor to its logical conclusion, I say, I, I cannot do this anymore. And then suddenly I had people, including people who had been part of that, um, part of really telling me that I was crazy, basically, going, oh, no, I've, I've gone too far. You know, what, what have I done here? How could I make things better? And um, sometimes it feels like well, once you've drawn that boundary, it's too late. But, but what I really wanted to do in terms of writing the book was have the conversation on my own terms. And not in a necessary, like, I want to control this conversation, but really the, the terms that I wanted and the agenda in which the conversation about race and racism was going to happen was one in which um, history was taken into consideration and that that context was absolutely vital, that there would be no ahistorical whitewashing of the past, um, that we would fully understand exactly how race shapes power in Britain. Um, you know, it was very difficult to discuss things without being accused of being a reverse racist um, mm -hmm. or being, like, prejudiced against white people. Um, and, and all I think I was doing was calling into question power, you know, 
I suppose it's the same way somebody who is critiquing neoliberalism, you know, but I feel like somebody who critiques neoliberalism isn't called aggressive and divisive, you know, but that's perhaps because we are a little bit more inclined to see neoliberalism as a system of power, but less so race. But the, the dynamics that I saw in Britain, and, you know, because I am a journalist first and foremost, I'm able to look at big picture information and interpret it for readers. And so I use data basically from just government agencies, not particularly biased campaigning organisation that showed a black boy was three times as likely to be excluded from school than his white counterparts. When it comes to year six exams to get into secondary school, um, black children were being chronically undermarked by their own teachers. Um, and that was something that was being uh, rectified by anonymous marking by external examiners, they would get a higher grade. I found that black children were much less likely to get into the top country's um, top higher education institutions. And, then, and when it comes to the job market, applying for a job, um, the Department for Work and Pensions in the UK uh, did a piece of extensive research in 2009 that showed that people with African and Asian-sounding names, alongside their people, their counterparts, people with white British-sounding names, now, take into account that all these people had similar qualifications and experience when it came to applying for jobs. People with African and Asian sounding names were much less likely to be called into interview than their uh, white British counterparts. And that's what I'm really talking about here. I'm talking about a, a dominant ideology. And in that dominant ideology, I'm not saying that, you know, schools and the job market has be, have been infiltrated by white supremacists and the KKK. Instead, I'm saying that there's a dominant ideology here that we are we participate in unless we are actively critical of. And that is something that I think was very confronting for white people, at least the white people I was spending time with back then, to, to understand that we actually have to be vigilant and be actively critical of this dominant ideology. Otherwise, we are going to completely unwittingly reproduce it. The vigilance is interesting because I love that you quote um, the... African-American feminist poet Audre Lorde a couple of times in the book. Mm. And one of her quotes is, of course, your silence will not protect you. So, and that you further go on to say, and I love this about the book, I won't ever stop myself from speaking about race. Every voice raised against racism chips away at its power. <clears throat> we can't afford to stay silent. This book is an attempt to speak. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that an awful lot of people attempted to try and coerce me into not saying these things you know it was I think particularly when I was involved in progressive groups the I felt quite deeply that I could discuss anything with these people but race because race would be um, the lightning rod the thing that will get me pushed out of the group because it will make people you know I think that there are many white people who have a paradox in their mind which is that you know first they're the broad and dominant understanding of racism is about morals, about good and bad people, which is why, you know, when you try to critique racist actions, you, you get a pushback of, well, that person hasn't got a racist bone in their body. They're a good person. And what I'm trying to say with my work is that actually it's not really about whether someone's good or bad. It's really about a dominant ideology that you're participating in. And if you're not being critical of it, then you can be participating in, in it unwittingly. And we all need to be just aware of that, right? Um... And so, I've almost actually forgotten the question now. <laughs> <laughs> there, there wasn't really people. a question. I just got, just... In this, I got in this afternoon. <laughs> well, let, let's press on. Yeah. Silence will not protect you, basically. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, once, once I started to really speak, 
I've, you know, my life changed once I started speaking about this. And I yeah. think it's because so many of my readers had felt silenced, deeply silenced. You mm. know, another line I have in the book is the options are if you're not white and you're working in a, you're trying to just get through in a society that frankly prizes whiteness, um, the options are, you know, speak your truth and face the reprisal or just bite your tongue and get ahead in life. Yeah. Um, I did want to ask you a question about your mum, because your mum comes up a bit in some of the interviews that I've um, heard and read, and mm. she's obviously a very significant figure. Is she a large reason why we're sitting here today? Wow. My, my relationship with my mother. I oh. Uh, <laughs> oh, is, uh, oh, right. Not many people ask me this. Not, and I don't have a therapist, so literally nobody asks me this. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, she has always been, I think... Uh, uh, a force in my life that encourages me to speak out when I see things going on that I don't think are right, because she has never... Um, she's never curved herself in that respect, so I'm a pretty good role model, I think. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, let's move along from Mum. <laughs> Dear old Mum. Um, yeah, she's good, she's good. The book is broken into seven chapters. Was it mm. hard um, deciding the seven chapters that you were going to attack, or did they all kind of reveal themselves quite easily? I think they were just the things that I felt were really urgent to, to tackle. So, for example, the conversation about race and class, I feel like, in Britain at least, it, these are like two very like different conversations that happen over there. And to me, I felt like these things were so intertwined with each other. It was, And I really wanted to bring to light that inter, interconnectedness. I, I love that you say that the, the question of class is something that follows you everywhere, and I mm. imagine it's like a stalker and a trench oh, yeah. coat. Absolutely. People want to say, isn't it about class as opposed to race? Yeah, I think particularly in Britain, people are like, oh, well, you know, the class is really the issue in this country. It's all about class, Rennie. And I'm like, yes, we could say it's definitely all about class, but it's not a coincidence that the vast majority of people of colour in this country are working class, is it? You know, mm. it's definitely... Actually, I'm, am I going to say fast majority? I'm going to say concentrated. I think particularly Afro-Caribbean people, concentrated, although there is a growing middle class, and I think that racism absolutely has something to do with it. But sometimes I feel quite frustrated about these, like, this conversation about the white working class, um, because it's like the dominant discourse doesn't really want to discuss whiteness in any form unless it's about working class people and then it's about the white working class who feel aggrieved um and and i just think that that is a i think it's a misinterpretation of class politics when did the term white working class start to permeate i feel like in britain it was actually the far right who really started going after say like pushing this narrative maybe about 10 15 years ago and and then that was something that was co-opted very much into the mainstream, particularly around Brexit. It was very much... Um, but this discussion of the white working class was almost like a way of legitimising basically xenophobic and racist views. It was like middle-class people in the media were ventriloquizing those concerns via the white working class. And it was, it was quite ridiculous and interesting to watch the news around that time and you know watch a news reporter from London go to a northern town in the middle of the day to interview people and then say this these people are representative of the white working class just simply because you know they're in the they're there in the middle of the day when 
other people are at work. Like, it just seemed a little odd to me, <laughs> you know. Um, and so, you, yeah, if you're going to, I don't know, I just thought it was really interesting. But I think around that time, like 2015, 2016, there was this upsurge of um, very, like, quite old school over racist views. Um, but they came back with a bang and they were dressed up as the uh, concerns of the working class man. And I didn't think that that was correct or right because I think that the background that I grew up in, which was a very working class background, it was extremely multicultural, actually. And but this led to the rise of Nigel Farage. Yeah, absolutely, Kirk, absolutely. But, you know, also I do, I do the analysis in the book that shows that the people who support his politics and his politics are, are ostensibly middle class yeah. <laughs> in terms of their relationship with wealth and so again i thought that there was some extreme ventriloquizing going on there and i wanted to challenge that in the book did that surprise you did Not it surprise me no <laughs> mm-hmm. i can't say it did but i think like Bruin has this underdog mentality where everyone thinks they're working class like right. no matter how much you earn or how much property you own <laughs> like david beckham is working class oh yeah i mean also there's like people want to be so people want to stick with the story of their backgrounds. So if they grew up in a working-class environment, regardless of their material circumstances now, they're like, yeah, but I'm working-class, though. And I really wanted to challenge that. And, I, you know, I came across research that basically showed that a lot of people who would self-define as working-class, identify as working-class, were saying it along cultural lines, not actually their relationship to wealth lines, you know. Yeah. It was showing that these were basically managers. <laughs> mm Really, one of the, the, the first um, chapter, and I really love this chapter, is histories. Mm. And um, I often quote the, the African-American science fiction writer Octavia E. Butler, mm. who um, said that she, because as a black woman in science fiction, she had to write herself in. Mm. And reading this um, chapter, I felt like you'd written in the black history of, of black people in Britain because mm. you were saying very used to being taught African-American history, but not so much the mm. history of... Britain, and that you were, in fact, surprised to learn that black people had been slaves. Mm. Well, absolutely. I think that, you know, in all the talk about perhaps the transatlantic slave trade and what I learned at, at school, it was very much you'd learn about Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King and Harriet Tubman, but you wouldn't really learn about um, the black British civil rights struggle or the fact that Britain even had a role in what that um, slave trade looked like or neither would you really have any deep understanding coming out of the British education what the extent of British colonialism meant for the entire world you know you would come away and just think oh yeah fair play like we all did good here and Britain's always been looking out for everyone <laughs> and I, I just thought it was really important to try and burst that bubble yeah there's one quote I totally love unlike this, this quote of yours, unlike the situation in America, most British people saw the money without the blood. Yeah, absolutely. When you're talking about slavery, uh, particularly with the slave trade. Yeah, particularly. Mm-mm-mm. Now I'm um, mixed race myself with a Samoan father. <laughs> to remember that Samoan father and, and a Palangi <laughs> mother, and um, I think almost my favourite bits is um, of your research is that there was an anthropologist in the 1920s from the University of Liverpool who researched what she called hybrid children and got the opportunity to research Liverpool's wretched, <laughs> i.e. half-caste children. <laughs> this, I love that you've used your journalism background to support all these facts. Mm. Were they hard to find, given that this isn't common knowledge to everyone? Um, I would say it was like I had to be hooked into the network. So 
uh, I was lucky that because of my writing and activism that I had people, I had people around me, some for whom were academics, some who were self-taught historians who were like, oh, you know, go down this rabbit hole, go down that rabbit hole. And actually, um, the person who pointed me in that direction was somebody I went to university with who lives in the north of England, who's also mixed race, who um, was, you know, we were talking about Liverpool in particular in north, West England and how um, it had a huge, huge role in the slave trade and how um, the slave trade basically built that city's historic, most historic and beautiful buildings. And then she really um, encouraged me to look at this particular study. It was a horrible racist bias study, but at the time it was published, it was considered um, a thought leader in what mixed race, the lives of mixed race children. And yeah, it was really fascinating to read. Mm. Also in the histories chapter, you deal with um, the, the Brixton riots of 85 and you mm. touch on the London riots of 2011. And this is quite a big question, but what would it take for those riots not to happen again in the future? Mm. Absolutely. I mean, that is a question I ask in the book because, you know, when people talk about race riots, they talk about it as though it's all equal, you know, two equal sides clashing. But what I found... I think repeatedly was that this was people revolting almost against the police and the police were seen as a gang. And I really wanted to, you know, we had this like broad understanding that these race riots had happened, but no understanding of what those daily slights may have been that led to a situation where people were so resentful of the police, you know, because the police is just an arm of, a, of the state basically there to keep us all happy and protected and prevent crime. Why did one particular community feel over-policed? And I went to the Black Cultural Archives in, in Brixton in London and found plenty of anecdotal evidence, mostly collated by an organisation called the Newer Monitoring Project, based in East London, mm. now sadly defunct. Uh, they shut down a couple of years ago due to lack of funding. But they... In the 80s, they would take verbal reports of black families who were talking about how the police were profiling them and harassing them. And that's a context that lead, leads to riots. It's not just people behaving badly out of the blue. And I really wanted to lay the groundwork for that context to understand why these things happen. You know, back in 2011, when, you know, London and a lot of England also was having riots, again, you know, the narrative was these people are just acting out for no reason. They're selfish, they're greedy, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought that the context of that was really important. Now, don't get me wrong, just because one protest against perhaps police profiling um, ends up with people in the rest of the country being opportunists. You know, I'm not saying that there weren't opportunists involved, but we also can't sort of skim over the kernel of why the unrest happened in the first place. Yeah, I mean, the, the bit that made me gasp was one of the um, examples you had of, I think it was either a mother getting shot when she went to go mm. um, check on her son when the police raided the house looking mm. for a son that didn't actually live in that house. Yeah, absolutely. Um, lots of parallels to the stuff that we are very used to seeing from America in terms mm. of over-policing and racial profiling. Mm. Um, you also touch in one, on in one of the chapters, or in, in the, the next chapter, the system, we um, with the Stephen Lawrence case, which I've been peripherally aware of. Mm. So this is, for those of you who, who don't know, this was an 18-year-old black uh, male who was killed in 1993, and it took him, it took 19 years, right? Mm. 
for two men to be charged with the yeah. murder. But even though we know that five were involved, which means three are still walking through it free. Mm. Uh, and, you know, during that 19 years, the Metropolitan Police, uh, there was an inquiry that found that the Metropolitan Police were institutionally racist. And the, the definition of institutional racism that inquiry came up with, which I thought was particularly poignant, poignant was um, it was about practices. It was about unthinking, marginalisation, stereotypes... So the inquiry wasn't saying that the Metropolitan Police was full of raving racists. The inquiry is saying that um, the, the black communities are being let down by the organisation, by the police as an organisation's <coughs> utter complacency to re either recruit them, <laughs> let alone understand them, and that that was having a devastating impact on um, on that his at that point historic crime. Mm. This chapter, the system deals with. Um, you prefer the term structural racism to mm. institutional racism. Yeah, absolutely. So in a nutshell, how would you? I mean, in a nutshell, I would say how racial bias is embedded into the systems, particularly in those organisations and institutions that we expect to treat us equally. Repeatedly, the evidence shows over and over again that if you are not white, you are just less likely to succeed in those institutions. You know, some of those. Um, stats that I outlined a little bit earlier. And that's what I'm talking about when I'm talking about structural racism. I love, I love that you say in terms of um, whiteness, that, as if whiteness isn't its own leg up. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so some people are disadvantaged systemically, then other people are advantaged. It's a yin and yang situation. Sometimes we can talk about disadvantage as though it happens in a vacuum. But as far as I'm concerned... Disadvantage of some happens to the benefit of others. That's the point of it. It's a political project. Mm -mm -mm. Chapter three, what is white privilege? Mm. That, that advantage. Yeah, so what the leg up. I, yeah, of course. I think sometimes when you talk about these things, people start thinking that you're saying, oh, um, white people never fail. <laughs> or, you know, are privileged, rich, living in the lap of luxury, being fed grapes by a Greek Adonis in a fancy yeah. hotel. Which is not what I'm saying. So I like to use, you know, the terms more likely and less likely. So when I'm talking about structural racism and how the odds can be stacked against people of colour, what I'm not saying is that people of colour can't it, like succeed. Not by any means. Here you are, here am I, you know. But what I am saying is that the odds are making it less likely to, you know. And the odds, particularly, I think exclusively along race lines conversely make it more likely for a white person to succeed in, in an in a atmosphere of systemic discrimination. Now, of course, we also know that there are other factors that might make, a white, might, might make it less likely for a white person to succeed. For example, if they're a woman, you know, we know that there's gender discrimination out, out there, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm really trying to encourage people to think about this in a, in a particularly nuanced way. It's not as easy as white people bad, black people good, although I'm sure some people keep trying, attempt to try and mischaracterise my analysis as that, to say that I'm saying that. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that we have to recognise this, that we're not all starting from a level playing ground and that there are systemic discriminations that, despite your relative talent, are going to work against you. And that's really what I'm talking about when I'm talking about white privilege. Yeah, I think people that don't think there's... That, I think people that think there is a level playing ground are... Mm willfully ignorant and well, often, yeah. often very educated. But I think some people, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing to believe in the idea of meritocracy. It's just a bad thing if you, if you belligerently believe in it with, um, and 
to the extent that you will ignore any factors that hinder meritocracy. As far as I'm concerned, meritocracy is something that we are const constantly working towards. We don't have it. To just assume that we have it, to me, that's a position of complacency. Not only, not only complacency, but also I think it can really spill over into malice when people are saying, actually, no, I'm being discriminated along these lines and the person who believes in meritocracy is like, uh, no, you're not, I don't believe you. You just don't work hard enough. Yep. Because then that's a willful ignorance. Um, one of the quotes from this chapter, why don't white people think they have a racial identity? Mm. Well, I think that that's um, the key to it really, isn't it? You know, I, you know whiteness has been very successful in a, as a political project in that um, everybody who's not white is defined against it. So, you know, white people get to be autonomous, free-thinking individuals um, who are never defined as a group. Uh, but if you're not white, it's all about, well, what does your community think? Mm. Now, no one ever asks a random white person, what does the <laughs> white community think of, you know, whatever hot-button social or political issue? Mm. And so, you know, I think the flip side of white people being considered as individual, free-thinking human beings is that, you know, if you're not white, you're A, used to being described at some point as a racial group or having a race, full stop, whereas like whiteness is neutral and objective and the default to the extent that white people don't even consider that they have a race. Yeah. And, um, and B, you're also quite familiar of being A, held to account on behalf of your community or asked to speak on behalf of your community, almost as though it's some kind of like nebulous, homogenous mass. You know, like everyone just thinks the same, like we just tap into the, uh, you know, to the cloud <laughs> or go to the annual black person's conference. Like what, <laughs> what policy are we voting on today? Okay, this is our stances for 2017. These are the positions we're taking. Like, yeah. you know, and to me, I, I feel quite... I feel deeply irritated at um, that, that attempt to strip away my individuality, mm. you know. <laughs> I find it very, very irritating. I was on a panel just earlier this week alongside um, a young Muslim woman and a Pakistani man. And um, they both were saying that they feel pride at being seen as representatives of their community. And I was like, I, I don't represent anyone. I just represent me. Yep. And if other people feel... Uh, that they strongly resonate with what I'm saying, then that's amazing. And I feel so happy about it. But I don't have constituents. I'm not a politician. Like, nobody's voted me here. Um, and, and that's not something that I think a white writer even has to think about, yeah. about representing other white people in the public sphere. A whole lot of them. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, chapter four, Fear of a Black Planet. Nice to see Public Enemy getting a shout out there yeah. in that title, <laughs> Fight the Power. So this starts with Enoch Powell, the controversial British MP infamous for his rivers of blood speech. And in 68, a year before I was born, predicting the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. Mm -hmm. Has it changed? Well, I mean, it's quite interesting just walking around um, the shopping city uh, earlier today and seeing a, a sign from what I can only assume is a very, very right-wing politician saying, you know, no more immigration. Again, to me, that seems a oh, lot like... Who could that be? Yeah. Um, <laughs> oh. mm, mm. That seems a lot to me like fear of a black planet. Um, mm. Funny there. No more foreign home ownership. Yeah. I, I'm not 100% like au fait with the political situation here. I know in London we but have you can a, a problem with Russian oligarchs. Um, but yeah, I think that mm. that's fear of a black planet. It's almost yeah. as if, you know... 
there's a paradox in the mind of certain demographics, which is A, racism doesn't exist, but B, white people being a minority is very bad because for reasons that maybe, I don't know, maybe they think they'll be discriminated against if they're a minority, I'm mm -hmm. not sure. Um, Me. But, you know, I, I think that that fear of uh, a black planet is unfounded because the political power is not shifting. You know, I speak to a far-right politician in the book um, because I really want Nick to... Griffin, the former British National Party leader. Yeah, exactly. Bizarre. And he ha espouses the same theory. You know, this theory of what what the far right calls white genocide, which is wildly offensive for so many different reasons um, that I'm not going to go into. <laughs> but... He's a he's a trip, right? He's yeah. um, I'm just quoting you in the in the interview. So this is the former British National Party leader saying to Rennie. Or he suggests that you get the hell out of this country and you go and have kids somewhere decent, probably somewhere connected with your own heritage, mm. because Britain is, to be crude, utterly fucked. Yeah, well, it's been quite interesting, I think, taking this book to this side of the world, uh, particularly in Australia. I think I was oh. speaking to indigenous people. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Uh, well with me on this one. Speaking to indigenous people who found what he said particularly galling, because he, as a white British person is say, said in the interview, oh, I feel like he was saying the indigenous peoples of Britain um, are being besieged uh, by immigrants, et cetera, et cetera, and we have a right to this land. And, you know, I respond to that in the book, not directly to him, but I say, but it was white Brits who attempted genocide of indigenous peoples, and now you're trying to co-opt their arguments, you know, like that is very, that's a, a ugly and pervasive, you know, flip of the, you know, attempt at a flip of those power structures. Um, and it was, uh, I think, a particularly like galling and disturbing and upsetting um, thing for my Australian Indigenous readers to, to read for very obvious reasons. Mm. So this like white genocide that some of the far right go on, on about is is disgusting and appalling for so many reasons. Um, the main one being that they cut, they don't recognise the existing power structures at hand. Like they have a denial uh, that structural racism exists, and they not only do they not recognise the existing power structures at hand, but they think that white people are the real victims um, of uh, racism. And, you know, sometimes people ask me about the US, which I hate talking about the US. They're like, oh, how, how can Nazis be bad? I'm like, well, I actually think that if we'd never have an honest conversation about race and power structures and we're just complacent about it, then, yeah, people will quite easily start to believe the myth of white victimhood. Quite yeah. easily, actually. Mm. Chapter five, the feminism question. Let's get back to girls and Leonard Dunham. Go on. So, you write the girls was hailed as the most feminist television show on television in decades, and you're not having it. Well, I mean, it's really more of a jump off to discuss how I think that um, you know there were, there felt like for a long time a strand of young white women who considered themselves feminists and changing the world and whatnot who are very hostile to any discussion of racial diversity at all. And I'm quite bored of the diversity conversation, actually. I didn't even watch the show. I don't care. But I was just a bit like, wow, like, is this the most feminist thing? I suppose, what does your feminism mean? Like, 
what do you envision the world to be like? Is it going to be just white women running things instead of white men? Because I just feel like that's not actually very... That doesn't seem to be very revolutionary to me. Actually, it just seems... <laughs> You've got a great, great quote. White feminism is a politics that engages itself with myths such as, I don't see race. It is a politics that insists that talking about race fuels racism, thereby denying people of color the words to articulate our existence. It's a politics that expects people of color to quietly assimilate into institutionally racist structures without kicking up a fuss. It's a politics where people of color are never setting the agenda. Yeah, absolutely. In line with whiteness as a dominant ideology, full stop. Um, and so, you know, I think it's nice and interesting and perhaps useful in an entry-level way to be interested in feminism on a gender-only line, but not all women are white, and so that analysis is only going to go so far. And you say in the book that you and another uh, woman of colour uh, becomes very important for you to meet as feminists mm. without white feminists present. Yeah, of course, because sometimes it was like trying to discuss... You know, I'm a woman, ostensibly, but I'm also black. So it wasn't enough to just talk about sexism because that sexism would sometimes be racialized. And it was difficult to speak about that with a woman who didn't experience that racialized sexism because she was like saying, oh, no, but that doesn't exist or that doesn't count or it's not as real as, as uh, more general broad-based sexism. And so I just think, I thought back then, I still think now that, if you are a feminist that has never thought about what it means to be white, then it's, a, it's pretty exclusive. It's pretty exclusive what you're doing. Chapter six, race and class. There's one quote uh, I, took, I really took from this. Being constantly looked at like an alien in the country you were born in requires true tolerance. Yeah, and that's in response to tolerance chat from politicians. Oh, such a tolerant country... Tolerance, wow, such a wonderful value. Uh, uh, I feel like that was something that was very much repeated around Tony Blair when, when he was a prime minister a good 20 years ago. And, and I point out that, you know, in the point of this rhetoric, you know, tolerance, what does tolerance actually mean? Because I used to live in a really mouldy flat and uh, I tolerated that mould. You know, I didn't embrace and accept it. I didn't, like, you know, I didn't love it being there. I just was like, okay, it's it was there. there. I'll it deal with it, you know. Okay. And that's what tolerance means. And then, I, and then I really say in the book that actually, if we really want to talk about tolerance, about recognising that something's there and there's nothing you can do about it and it may never change... I just feel like navigating racism, that requires true tolerance, you know? Mm -hmm. That is what, biting your tongue at every corner so as not to be socially sanctioned, I think that requires true tolerance. Chapter seven, the final chapter, there's no justice, there's just us. A quote from the late writer, Terry Pratchett. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Didn't see that coming, but it's a great, <laughs> it's a great quote. Yeah, I think that it's very much about, it is... I fear that we've reached this point of extreme political polarisation, sometimes along race lines, because of complacency. Because we were like, well, everything's good now. We live in a multicultural society. Everything's fine. Everything's good. And, and we have, must never forget that rights are hard won and are also consistently under, under attack. Even, from, even if we consider them to be fringe quarters, it doesn't necessarily mean that we shouldn't challenge them as and when. Um, I think that the far right, some of the more extremist and Nazi ideologues, 
have recently gained currency because people, there are some people on the middle ground that are looking to them. And so it's not enough to say, oh, well, those people are just crazy. We're just going to ignore them, you know? I think it's, neither is it enough, I think, for, I think, white people in particular to say, well, I'm against racism, so I'm a good person, but I'm not actually going to do anything or actually challenge anybody in my immediate vicinity or but discuss you do, racism. you do challenge white people in this, this chapter, right, at the end. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm talking about white people in particular considering themselves to be anti-racist and therefore good people, and so, but not actually doing anything, you know. Um, you don't sleepwalk into the future. I mean, we can sleepwalk into the future, but somebody else will make it for you. Like, I think it's our jobs to make our own future, to work actively on the kind of future that we actually want to be living in, like, actively working on it. That means being critically anti-racist continually. There is, no, there is no way that we can be like, well, I'm not racist, and so I don't need to do anything, you know? Sometime, I was having a conversation with another author the other day and she was saying that she can kind of understand now, you know, she was saying, what is the thing? You know, some people ask themselves, like, what would I have been doing when, when horrible war crimes were happening, you know, years ago? Like, why didn't anybody do anything? Why didn't anybody do anything? And I think it's because we do have a dominant ideology that justifies oppression, you know, we have a dominant ideology you can turn on and any number of media sources that will say, well, this, this oppression is happening, but these people deserve the oppression for these reasons. They don't do this, they're lazy, they're that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. To me, that is the ground. That is the ground that is set for essentially human rights abuses that we should continually challenge. Uh, I don't think it's good enough to just be like, intellectually against it, things. I think that we should be acting on it. And I, when I say acting, I don't necessarily mean you have to go to a protest, you know, or you have to be a hardened activist and lie in the middle of the road. But I do mean that when you see that these dominant ideologies at work, because they are sadly all too common, we should challenge them. And I, and I, and I end the book by saying, I think white people in particular speak to other pe white people about race. I think what I'm saying in the book is not particularly reified, you know, san sanctity knowledge that only lies in the head of people who are not white, not by any means. It's just critical anti-racism that anybody can recognise and anybody can understand. Uh, sometimes people read the book, they're like, oh, it's fundamentally changed my ways of, in which I see race. And I say, brilliant. That means you're well equipped to challenge racism now, you know. I think that anybody can do it. I really do. Sometimes people ask me, oh, well, what can I do? And I say that I don't consider myself to be a leader by any means. I consider myself part of a movement. I think if somebody reads the book and they feel deeply affected by it, then they're also part of that movement and we're working on it together. I think the solution is collective. And um, just, I'm saying this before Q&A, so don't start asking me what can can you do because, because I don't have access to, um, you know each and every single person's resources, you know, each and every single person's networks. I couldn't possibly say exactly what you can do in your particular situation. But, but I also sort of trust my readers to, to think critically and act because, and, and I'm delighted, you know, a couple of months since the book's come out that people are getting back to me and saying, well, I've challenged racism in this particular way or I work on a school board or I interview people for jobs and I've seen how racism is manifesting in these ways and I've started to challenge it. 
Okay, look, just to close this bit out before we open it up to, um, to questions, I've got one last hypothetical question for you. Say in 100 years from now, when everyone in this room will be dead, and when whoever the young 20-something Rene Edo Lodge then is speaking her or his or their truth in a blog or a book, do you think the conversation um, would have changed? I think incremental wins every day are happening. Incremental wins. I think that what I see is a middle ground, a battle for what our broad understanding of racism is. Uh, I think that that's what each of us, as, as critical anti-racists, we're working on every day. And that narrative does change, and it is changing, you know. I think the book has a sense of urgency to it, but despite that sense of urgency, I recognise it's a long slog that will continue long, long, long after I'm gone. Mm. And, I, and I hope that in 100 years' time, that middle ground is, has changed because right now, in this particular point of history, um, there is a battle for that middle ground. You know, you've got, you've got some very nefarious, um, ill-willed people who are attempting to claim claim the dominant narrative of what we understand racism to be. Um, that, and their aim is to continue the status quo. And I think that we're critical anti-racists. We should always be working to, to, towards meritocracy. You know, we should have that goal in mind. And working towards meritocracy means understanding how racism manifests, how it's justified, um, how we shrug our shoulders and ignore it because it's just the norm. Um, and, and I hope that, you know, I do really see this as a collective effort. And I think that, you know, if we, we start now, we can achieve that. Thank you, Rennie Edo Lodge. Okay. And the last few minutes that we have left, um, we have a roving microphone uh, for some questions. And by questions, we mean questions <laughs> as opposed to statements. We're really looking for questions, not statements. So, are there any? Yes, here's a question uh, over here. Hi, you talk about meritocracy, but underlying that must be a set of values. Mm. So, whose values, you know, you have a dominating value. So, how do you have, say, in a government institution, Mixed values or... Mixed values? Well, for instance, in New Zealand, you have a bicultural situation. Mm. Um, and it's, it's a fine... You know, we're trying to discover what that means to, mm. to uphold two sets of cultural values. So, yeah, how do you move forward with I, different sets of values, I suppose? I don't know. I mean, I think sometimes, let's say organisations in particular, they might have a commitment to equality and diversity. And they might say that we value equality and diversity. I think that it's quite easy for people to say that they value, and organisations in particular, to say they value equality and diversity as a surface-level thing. Um, but in terms of the self-reflection about where power really lies in that organisation... Uh, the evidence doesn't show that they value equality and diversity. So to me, in terms of values, I think beyond like political stances, which I'm not so much interested in, I think it's pretty obvious that I, I'm on the left, but in terms of like political parties or 
stances I'm less interested. I, I think that if we sort of really believe in meritocracy, then we have to be truly critical of ourselves and our organisations and see how, it is how that value is working in practice. If we consider that to be a value. Now, I don't know, maybe I'm just being too good-natured in, in assuming that everybody considers meritocracy to be a value, because maybe there's some people who don't, I'm not sure. Um, but I think broadly most of us do, and I think that maybe the reason why this, these schisms happen and why the problem feels so pronounced is because some of us understand that it's something that it's a value that we work towards and other people believe that we just already have it. Does that answer your question? I guess so. It's that practical level of, um, mm. you know, do you have, um, how do you open it up mm. so that other values, other cultural values are held in as high esteem as white dominant values? Mm. Well, I'm not by any means a diversity practitioner, but I suppose if people understand that, if there are people in, in let's say, an organisation recognise that they've, that their values are white dominant, that could be the first step, you know, if, because sometimes, like, white dominant values are just seen as objective ones, <laughs> you know, then the other cultures are seen as subjective kind of over there, so... Do we have any more questions? Up, 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 up and away. Uh, what do you think about white people, like kind of well-meaning white people, how you can avoid tokenism? Like you mentioned that earlier well, can on. Can you repeat that, please? Tokenism, how to right. avoid tokenism. You said that you'd been involved in a panel, was that right? And you mm. and you felt it was, was tokenism. Did mm. you say that earlier? So people who are wanting to be diverse mm. in organisations or whatever they're doing, how do you think tokenism can be avoided? To me, it's very clear. Who's setting the agenda? Who is including who? So I even hate the word inclusion because it's like, who's including who? Who's setting the agenda? Like, are you just getting somebody who is a bit different to the table to espouse the same thing that all the white people are saying? Or are you actually getting somebody to help you build the, or even create the agenda, collaborate, not help, okay? So it's about collaborating and working together. So who is setting the agenda? And if, you know, like part of the reason that I wrote the opening essay to the book was I was tired of working to an agenda that I was never able to set. I was always on the menu, I was never at the table. It was always, I, it, you're, you're invited to join at the last stage, but we've already done all the thinking about how this is going to work out. And so to me, that's so crucial. Is there one more question right up the back of the room? Over now you're going to get that microphone oh, over there. Okay. Um, you said on Melanin Millennials that you wrote the book like for yourself, and I was wondering whether from the start of writing the book to the end and maybe to now, like your views had changed or your conception of the structure that you live in had changed, if that mm. makes sense. Do you mean my views have changed in terms of who I'm writing the book for? Well, yeah, hmm. I guess so. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I mean, from the beginning of the whole writing a book process, 
one of the things that people asked me a lot was, who is it for? Who is it for? To which I said, look, I'm not a marketer. I don't work in advertising. Like, I don't, I'm not saying that this is for men between the ages of 40 and 60 who live in this particular area or, you know, millennial women who, you know, also enjoy girl boss. You know, like, it was very much, um, to me, it was, to me, it's always been very much about self-expression. I, but I had a very clear idea about the book that I wanted to write and how it was going to function, how it was going to begin, how it was going to end, the arguments that I wanted to make. But... Um, I didn't think to myself, this particular group of people are going to read it. I recognise that some people m who are almost always people who are not white say, I find this book cathartic. I find this book saying things that I've been too scared to say. And I also recognise that other people who are usually white say, this book has really challenged me, made me think differently. Um, have have my thoughts changed and moved in terms of starting the writing of the book? To be honest with you, I feel a bit freer to discuss and think about other things now, simply because this was like the baseline. Like I feel like this was the baseline of the context that I had to get out of my head before I was able to work on anything new. So I don't think my views will ever shift on on the baseline of what I've written in the book because... You know, I, I think I don't want to talk myself up too much, but, you know, I did the research, I collected the evidence, I tried to put forward the strongest case I possibly could. Um, and and I still very much believe in what, in what I've written. Um, I'm, no, I'm not disagreeing with myself on anything I've written. Or if I am, it's very minor points. So, for example, you know, I think there's a point there when I... There's a point in the book when I say white privilege is the absence of the consequences of racism but I would dispute that now in that it's not that white people don't experience the consequences of racism it's just that the consequences that they experience are mostly positive rather than negative so you know it's things like that that would slightly change but I, I still definitely believe in it but you know who knows maybe in you know 50 years time I'll do a Jermaine Greer and argue with myself about the book I wrote when I was <laughs> when I was like 25, who knows? <laughs> okay, the last question, gentlemen up the back, right up the back, and then we'll have to wind it up, I'm afraid. Um, what, in your opinion, is the very definition of racism? The, the very definition of it. Okay. Yeah, like what would, you, what would you define it as? And then extend it onto that. Would you call it reverse racism or would it just be racism? Because, you know, it doesn't really happen. So. Okay, so to me, the, it's about prejudice plus power. So sometimes pe people go to me, yeah, but Renny, people who aren't white are prejudiced. And I'm like, yes. Yes, they are. Uh... <laughs> I'm not disputing that, uh, but what I, I don't even attempt to uh, dispute that, neither am I attempting to try and create a narrative in which I say white people are really bad and everyone who's not white is an angel and good and devoid of any sin. Um, what I'm saying is that, yeah, lots of people are prejudiced in lots of different ways, including me. It's about how the prejudice affects other people's life chances. So if you're living in a society in which 
white people are just more likely to be landlords, bosses, teachers, you know, university vice chancellors, um, where they are actually overrepresented in particular positions of power, then that's where the prejudice can really negatively affect people's life chances. So to me, that's, that, that's where the definition lies. Sometimes I get white people saying, you know, I was in bully, bullied in school for being white or, you know, being treated in, in a negative way uh, and have faced interpersonal prejudice. And I don't dispute that, neither do I attempt to try and tell them that that, that, that didn't exist or it didn't happen to them. I'm not really looking to um, snatch or dispute anybody's life experience. But to me, structural racism is about how it's beyond interpersonal prejudice. It's much, beyond, much bigger than that. It's about how the system is built. Does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, it does. Thank okay, you very much. You. Okay, so on that point, um, yeah, on behalf of uh, Word Christchurch and the Christchurch Arts Festival, thank you all for coming. And let's hope that Huda is, feels better soon. Absolutely. Yes. Rennie's book is on sale in the foyer at the UBS stand, and uh, she'll be available to sign it for you. It's certainly my book of the year. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to say a big fafatai lava. Thank you, Rennie Edo Lodge. Thanks for having me, everyone. Thanks.